0: The work of James Jordan has inspired and taught me my entire adult life. His lectures and books have revealed to me the deep and rich story that the Bible is telling, causing me to be even more in awe of God's Word and how He is using it to shape every aspect of our lives. I'm very glad to see the Theopolis Institute expand upon this work and enable so many men to share their wisdom. I know that the work of Theopolis will extend throughout the generations and I consider it a privilege to support this great endeavor. We want to thank you, David, for those encouraging words, and if you, our listeners, would like to become a Theopolis partner and support us in our work, you can find a link in the show notes or go to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and click on the Give tab. Welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our series in the Psalms of Ascent, and here James Jordan is going to give an introduction to Psalm 132. We do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes, specifically to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and to make sure you are keeping up with our blog as we post new articles every Tuesday and Thursday. We want to thank you so much for listening, we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving an introduction to Psalm 132.
1: of Psalm 132. Let's read it over and get it before our minds. Again, this is one of the Psalms of ascent. Appropriately, this psalm describes the ascent of the ark to Zion, which parallels the ascent of all the people who are in union with God as they come to Zion to worship. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes nor slumber to mine eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Stanza 2. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in Kiriath-Jarim. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to thy resting place, thou in the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy godly ones sing for joy. Stanza 3. For the sake of David, thy servant, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. Stanza 4. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. Four sections then. A prayer to God to remember David and how David yearned to build the house of the Lord. Then a statement of how the ark was found and brought up to Jerusalem. Then a prayer... This is probably by Solomon, this psalm. For the sake of David, thy servant, don't turn away your face from me. And a reference to the Davidic covenant, that there would always be a descendant of David sitting upon the throne. And then finally, a summary of various blessings that will come upon the son of David, because the Lord has chosen Zion. Now, this psalm has an elaborate background, and in order for us to understand it properly, we need to spend tonight... Hopefully we'll get it all in tonight. Looking at the background, we need to look at two basic things. One, the history of Jerusalem, why David saw fit to move the Ark to Jerusalem, why it was so important for David to take the city of Jerusalem, where he got the idea that Jerusalem was supposed to be the place where the Ark would be put. And second of all, something about the history of the Ark of the Covenant itself. Let's turn back then to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 and let's look at something. Let's put ourselves in David's place. If you're David, then you know the first five books of the Bible. You've heard them read publicly every Sabbath day in the synagogue. You have perhaps have learned how to read yourself. Maybe not. We can assume that David had learned to read, considering everything he wrote later on. So you've studied the five books of Moses. And you're aware that Joshua's book is around Samuel apparently wrote Judges and Ruth, although not all of it, maybe. Perhaps the story of Ruth hasn't been written yet, but Joshua and Judges are probably available for your reflection. And you David, and you meditate upon Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, and as you think about these things, you produce this psalm here. This isn't something that just came to David It's something probably that came out of meditation upon stuff that was earlier in the Bible. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew." Okay, Lots of images there we've looked at before. The image of the rising of the sun compared to the volunteering of the people. Something that Deborah also calls attention to in the Psalm of Deborah. She talks about the people volunteering and she also compares them to the rising of the sun. Also, the idea of God's rule flowing out from Zion to the four corners of the earth. The scepter being stretched out. This is definitely a David psalm. And then he says in verse 4, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, where did David get Melchizedek? Well, David gets Melchizedek, as you know, from Genesis chapter 14. But David seems to see himself in the place of Melchizedek, a priest king. And Melchizedek was priest and king of the city of Salem or Jerusalem. So right away, there's a connection made here between the Jerusalem that we're familiar with and the city ruled over by Melchizedek, the priest-king. Now, the fact that Melchizedek was both king and priest points to two things. First of all, we know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. It points to the priestly work, and we can make a jump right from there to the fact that if Melchizedek is the archetype of the priest-king, then his city, Salem is the place where the temple and the place of sacrifice is going to be located. That's going to be the place, and that's how David knew about Jerusalem. But we can trace it down more than that. Let's look, for instance, at Judges chapter 1. As soon as Israel entered into the land, they began to take the cities, and we learn that as soon as they came into the land, Jerusalem had a prominent place. For instance, we read in Judges chapter 1, verse 7. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done so, God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Right away in the book of Judges, attention is called to the sacking of Jerusalem. And when they conquer this man, the Lord of Bezek, who had apparently ruled over 70 of the other Canaanite city-states, when they bring him to judgment, they bring him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is already important in the minds of the people. We learn something else about Jerusalem in verse 21. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. What's the situation in Jerusalem then? They weren't able to drive out the Jebusites. Jerusalem is a city with several hills, but we may talk about a northeastern hill and a southwestern hill. Israel took that southwestern hill, and the valley in between was contested area, and then on the larger northeastern hill, Mount Zion, the Jebusites remained. And the Israelites never took that place until David took it. But initially, when they conquered the land, Their conquest was never complete. Now, I want you to hold that in mind that the conquest of the land was never complete under Joshua or under the campaigns listed here. Always, there was a fortress, a citadel called the Mello, on Mount Zion, which was a holdout for the Canaanites. The Jebusites lived there. They were never driven out. In fact... At some points in Israelite history, extended influence into the whole area. In Judges 19, verses 10 and following, we read about the Levite. The man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come, let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. His master, however, said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. So even though the sons of Benjamin had, as we read, initially taken Jerusalem, at least half of it, they don't seem to have exercised a lot of dominion there. And at least in this point in history, the Jebusites were spoken of as the ones who maintained the city. So hold in mind that in the initial conquest, this fortress on Mount Zion, the citadel of Jebus, was not taken. But we have seen from this, and from Judges chapter 1, that there was an orientation. The people knew from their history that Abraham, their father, had offered tithes to Melchizedek, the priest-king of Jerusalem. And for some reason, they associated that as the center of power in the land. And they tried to conquer it, though they failed. So there's already an orientation toward Jerusalem long before the time of the monarchy. Now let's fill that in with one more piece of information from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 says... Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Does anybody remember what happened on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22? That's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. And that's where Jerusalem was built. And the temple is built in the same place, the same mountain, large mountain range, same place as Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and the same place where later on Jesus is crucified. The same basic hill. Don't think that Bible geography is not important, you see. It happens 2000 B.C., Abraham sacrifices Isaac and receives him back by resurrection as a type. About 1000 B.C., the temple is put at the same place. About zero, 30 A.D., a thousand years later, Jesus is crucified, the same place. It's important. Always look at geography when you're studying the Bible. All right, now, you're a godly Jew and you're part of Joshua's army. The city of Jerusalem is important to you because of Melchizedek. It's also important because that's basically where Isaac was sacrificed. And Isaac is a type of the Messiah. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of Adam. After all, the two great types of Christ in the genealogy are the son of David and the son of Abraham as it says in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 the very beginning the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham the true Solomon the true Isaac true king and the true sacrifice Melchizedek was priest king of Jerusalem so that's where the king will be and that's where the temple will be where the sacrifices take place and now David as the true king is like Melchizedek, he has to live in Jerusalem and he will put the ark and build the temple at the same place as Isaac had been sacrificed, the same place as Melchizedek had carried out his sacrifices. Now we might just briefly look at that in second Samuel chapter 5. In second Samuel 5, We read about how David took the city of Jerusalem, starting in verse 4. David was 30 years old. It's interesting how the Bible calls attention to 30 years old. as the time when people begin to take up their responsibilities in life. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. It took seven and a half years for David to consolidate his reign. But as soon as he had it consolidated, he went straight to Jerusalem and made that his capital. In other words, this drive to Jerusalem, which had been short-circuited 430 years earlier, or more than that, more than 430 years earlier, at the initial conquest, is finally carried out by David. That's important. Now, let's look at how it happened. Verse 6. This is just of interest. Now, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away, thinking to themselves, David cannot enter here. Well, this fortress was on the top of a high hill. And it was just about impossible to scale up this hill and go up the walls and get in. Virtually impossible. And so these men say, we don't even need to hire an army to fight you, David. We know you're tough. But even blind and lame people could keep you out of the millow fortress of the Jebusites. Nobody can get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. It was later named that. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's read it carefully. They're going to reach it through the water tunnel. In other words, there was a tunnel that carried water apparently up into this fortress. And David and his men apparently went up inside the city and snuck in through this. So they didn't have to scale the walls. So they snuck into the city. Now, because the Jebusites has said that they might as well be lame and blind, then David says, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. That's a contemptuous way of referring to all the Jebusites. It's not that David hated lame and blind people, but he's talking about the Jebusites when he says that. And then this became a proverb, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. That is, Jebusites or Canaanites shall not come into the house. And by the way, that's picked up, of course, in Zechariah 14, where it says they will no longer be Canaanite in the house of the Lord. So in verse 9, So David lived in the stronghold, and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Millo, that is the citadel, and inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Okay, David has now finally taken the fortress of the Jebusites. And now is the first chance he's got. He is ready to sort of act like a Melchizedek. I believe that David probably saw himself as something of a Melchizedek in that he tries to bring the ark in, wants to build a temple, although God tells him he can't build a temple. Now, having looked a little bit at the history of Jerusalem, I want to take us back now to the beginning of history and look at the ark of the covenant. But I want to summarize Jerusalem, right from the time of Abraham, is identified as the center of the land. It is where the priest king is located. Abraham, the father of the faithful, pays tithes to Melchizedek, the priest king. And so when the nation is established, God doesn't even have to say anywhere in Deuteronomy or Exodus, when you get to the land, take Jerusalem and make it the capital city. They already knew that because they had understood what was meant by the history of Abraham. And so the drive is to get there. That's where the king will be. That's where the sacrifices will take place, which the sacrifice of Isaac, the true son, was a type of. But they don't succeed in taking it, and everything is suspended until finally David takes the city, and now Jerusalem can become the capital. And now it's time to bring the ark in there, because God is the true king, and the ark is his throne. The ark is that golden slab With a cherub on either side, just like a throne with a lion on either side. So God's throne has a cherub on either side. And the cherubs were very terrifying looking creatures with four faces and full of eyeballs and all the other things that the Bible says about them. They were not sweet to look at. They had voices like the voice of thunders and great cascades of water. And people were terrified whenever they saw The cherubim. So here God's throne now has got to be moved to Jerusalem. And the sacrifices have got to be set up in Jerusalem because that's the way it was supposed to be ever since the time of Abraham. But where's the ark? Well, we read in the psalm, Behold, we found it in Ephrathah. How did it ever get in Ephrathah? What is Ephrathah? Probably get to that next week. Let's look at 1 Samuel 4. And I'm going to read several chapters of the Bible for the next 15 minutes. We're going to be... In 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7. And if we have time, we may look over at the actual bringing of the ark to the city. But to understand the background of Psalm 132, we need really to have in our minds what happened to the ark. When Israel came out of Egypt, of course, they already had a tenth meeting. We know that from Exodus 32, 33, and 34. But God took Moses up on the mountain and showed him how to beautify and make that tent of meeting into the palace that it should be. And so the directions for the tabernacle and the directions for building the ark and the other pieces of tabernacle furniture were given. That stayed with the people throughout the wilderness wanderings and into the conquest of the land. And then the center of worship is in Shechem and sometimes it's in Shiloh. And you begin to see a few different places, Gilgal, where the tabernacle was located I don't have in my mind all the details of the history of that. But at various times in the history of the Judges, it seems as if the tabernacle was located at one or another of these important central locations. But then something happened in 1 Samuel 4. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 3 a very interesting comment. Verse 1 to 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Now all the Hebrew students have translated this and could probably give it to you in Hebrew right off the top. This is where we all start in Hebrew. But let's look at what that means. The kingdom is in tremendous decline. There is very little word from the Lord Visions are infrequent. Now, as a symbol of the decline of the Word of God, two things are true. And it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place, now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. The high priest who stands for the people, his eyes are dim and he does not see well. The Bible doesn't have to tell us that, you see, it tells us that because Eli is the high priest and Everything Eli does as the high priest is important and symbolic. And what happens to Eli as the high priest is important and symbolic. That will become important in just a minute. The first thing that symbolizes the bad condition of the time is that Eli, the representative of the people, his eyes are dim and he cannot see very well. Now we know that that's a figure for spiritual blindness. Especially when it's the high priest, especially when the text calls attention to it like it does here. And then it says in verse 3, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Well, there's no place recorded in the Bible where it actually does go out, but for some reason the Holy Spirit has seen fit to put in here to imply to us that that sevenfold candelabra, the lamps were getting dim and there wasn't much light. So people couldn't see well and there wasn't much light coming out and we know the nation is in real decline. Now, we've studied the book of Judges The book of Judges gives us this decline toward this point, and now we are about to hit rock bottom, and we are going to hit rock bottom at this point in Israel history right now in chapter 4. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread out, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Now this is good Roman Catholic idolatrous solution. You'll remember from the book of Judges, when they were defeated in battle, they were righteous enough to go and say, Where have we sinned? And God told them where their sins were, and they confessed their sins, and then they were able to fight and win the victory. But here it's magic. The people now view the Ark of the Covenant the way raiders of the Lost Ark viewed the Ark of the Covenant, has a magic power box which always defeats its enemies. Remember in Raiders of the Lost Ark how they said, the Ark, when it's taken into battle, always destroys the enemy. Of course, you all thought about what we're about to read here, that it certainly does not. Because the Ark is God walking on the earth at this time, and God thinks for himself. But here they think they can manipulate the situation with an icon. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. The language here is piled up to show that they were playing with fire. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God, and we remember that those two boys were quite degenerate, weren't they? So that, again, is calling attention to the problems. And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp that all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Then they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, for who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods, or this is the God, who smote the Philistines with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Hold that in mind now. This is the God who smites with plagues. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Verse 11, And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, the ark is taken into battle, and notice what happens to symbolize a second way the death of Israel. Verse 17, Then the one who brought the news answered Eli and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. And it came about when he mentioned the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate His neck was broken and he died, for he was big and fat. Thus he judged Israel for forty years. As soon as Israel dies, the high priest dies, because the high priest signifies Israel. Remember, when Jerusalem is taken, the wife of the high priest is killed. Remember in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is the high priest. His wife dies in the very hour that the bride of God is killed. Now, this is a symbolic structure that's used in the Bible. Eli dies, and then Eli's grandson is born. And you remember at the end of the chapter, his name is Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark is taken. Now, what happens to the ark? It's taken down into Egypt. No, not quite, into Philistia. But now this signifies a new captivity of Israel in Egypt. When the ark is with the Philistines... That is God taking as a substitute the punishment that his people deserve. Instead of Israel being captured by the Philistines, the ark goes into captivity, into death, as a substitute for the people. And you have, from this point on, all the way to the life of David, a recapitulation of the deliverance from Egypt. Now, let's watch it. In the Bible, basic patterns happen over and over again. Abraham goes down into Egypt. Abraham comes under attack by the Pharaoh. God smites the Pharaoh and delivers Abraham with great spoil. Isaac goes down into Egypt. Isaac comes to Philistia. Isaac comes under attack. God smacks the one who is attacking Isaac, and Isaac comes out with great spoil. Jacob goes into a strange land. Jacob gets reduced to slavery by his father-in-law. God gives Jacob information and a vision, and Jacob leaves with the gods of Laban. And Laban is pushed back, and Jacob comes out with great spoil. Then it happens again in the Exodus, and now it is going to happen again. The Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Here's the new captivity. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. and set it next to Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face. To the ground, before the ark of God. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Now, God had humiliated the gods of Laban. You'll remember that Rachel was sitting on the gods of Laban and said she was on her period. and that's about as humiliating an experience that a false god can undergo. And then God had humiliated the false gods of Egypt, and now he humiliates the false gods of the Philistines. When they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face before the ark of the Lord again. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So the humiliation of false gods at this new exodus. And then in verse 6, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with hemorrhoids. Both Ashdod and its territories, so plagues, like the boils in Egypt, so the plagues upon the people. Now, the chapter goes on and tells about how this was worse and worse. Then in chapter 6, now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months, a fullness of judgment. Now, when Abraham was sent out by Pharaoh, he got some spoil. And when Jacob was sent out by Laban, he got some spoil. And when the Jews came out of Egypt, they spoiled the Egyptians. So guess what? The Egyptians are not dumb. The Philistines are not dumb. Verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, how shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. You shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, Well, what shall we send? And they said, Five golden hemorrhoids and five golden mice. Don't ask me about that. I don't understand it, but there were five lords of the Philistines, and there's one for each city. That's as far as we can go. And so in verse 6, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had severely dealt with them, didn't he let the people go, and they departed? And so the parallel is made explicit. Now the ark gets put on this cart and driven out, and the Philistines just hope that it will go away. And it does. And it goes to Beth Shemesh. We read about that in verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh, the house of the sun, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. And the ark came into the field of Joshua the Bethshemite, and stood there where there was a large stone, one of these memorial stones. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then the Levites took down the ark and the box that was with it, in which were articles of gold, and put them on the large stone, and so forth and so on. And then it says in verse 19, And the Lord struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. You weren't supposed to look in there. He struck down of all the people 50,000 and 70 men. And the people mourned because the Lord struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jairim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jairim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, obviously, this was a Levite who lived in the area. And it came about from the day the ark remained at Kiriath-Jarim that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What's going on here? Does the ark get taken back to the tabernacle and get all set up? No. It gets left. It doesn't get brought in. What happened to Israel when they came out of Egypt? Did they go straight into the land? Oh, there was a wilderness. Now we enter into a new wilderness period. And this wilderness period goes all the way through the reign of Samuel. And Samuel becomes a new Moses. And if you watch Samuel, you'll see Samuel functions like Moses functioned. And you'll find that the people rebelled under Samuel. And they said they wanted to have a king like the other nations. you find a lot of parallels parallels with the unfaithfulness in the wilderness. And then we find Saul is made king, and he's not an adequate king, and Israel stays in the wilderness. And then David is anointed, but David is persecuted by Saul, and David winds up in all these wilderness wanderings outside the boundaries of Israel for a long time, right? See, this recapitulation is almost perfect. And then, finally, there is a new conquest. David becomes king at Hebron, And seven and a half years later, he's finished consolidating his reign and he conquers the Jebusites and that completes the conquest of the land. How long did it take the Israelites to conquer the land? Seven years. How long did it take David? Seven years. And then the land was finished and now it's time for Israel to move in. And now it's time for the ark to be taken into Jerusalem and put in its place. You see how this theologically recapitulates. Next week... We will look at what happened when this new Joshua, David, having conquered the land, now takes the ark into the city and sets it up in the tabernacle in the city. Because David had problems with that. And then once we've studied that, and we can review this whole history and get it all before us, then we're in a position to understand Psalm 132 and what's really being spoken of there.
2: Remember Yahweh for David's sake. All this painstaking effort, how he swore an oath to Yahweh, and vowed to the valiant one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house. Surely I will not go up to the comfort of my bed. Surely I will not give sleep to mine eyes to my eyelids slumber, until I find a place for Yahweh, tabernacles for the valiant one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go into his tabernacles, let us worship at the footstool of his feet, Arise, Yahweh, to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints sing for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Yahweh swore an oath to David in truth, He will not turn from it. From the fruits of your body, I will place upon your throne. If your sons will guard my covenant, and my testimony which I shall teach them, then their sons forever will sit upon your throne. For Yahweh has chosen Zion, he desired her for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell for I have desired her, her provision blessing I will bless, her poor will I satisfy with bread, her priests will I clothe with salvation, and her saints will Singing for joy, they will sing for joy. Here will I make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon him will his crown be resplendent. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, age
0: after age, amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.